On today's morning show, we are going to be examining 12 instances in which various people faced monumentally important ethical dilemmas and choices. Some of the names on this list will be very, very familiar. Names like uh, John, John F. Kennedy, John Adams, Nelson Mandela, Marie Curie, and others will not be nearly so familiar. But in each and every case, we are talking ab- about someone who was confronted with uh, important and very, very difficult choices. And uh, we examine these moments and these ethical dilemmas uh, through the eyes of uh, Dr. Tom Cooper, who has written extensively uh, through his career on various issues related to ethics. His new book is called Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. His previous books include Television and Ethics, a Bibliography, Communications, Ethics, and Global Change, and Fast Media, Media Fast. Uh, He served for a time as editor and co-publisher of Media Ethics Magazine, and uh, he has even served as uh, an ethics consultant for the United Nations. He has taught extensively uh, on this topic in a number of different places, and I'm very, very honored to be able to speak with him about this, his latest book, again called Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. Uh, Dr. Tom Cooper, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. I'm at Emerson College in Boston, sending good vibes to you guys. Very good. Glad to be talking with you today. So tell us, first of all, your own professional path into this particular uh, academic arena. Uh, That is, uh, when and why or under what circumstances were you drawn to explore uh, the whole matter of of ethics. Thanks very much. It all started um, at Emerson College when I came. Uh, within two or three years, people were telling me, you're really teaching ethics. You're just not calling it that. So I had for a long time been very interested in philosophy. I studied it as an undergrad at Harvard and in many other ways, but I had never thought of calling my research ethics. Over the years, I've written a lot of books about different aspects, but I'd never seen nor heard of anyone writing a book about the most difficult ethical decisions in history, decisions that greatly shaped history and perhaps whether or not we'd even be alive, as in Truman's case of dropping the bomb and Kennedy's case of preventing dropping the bomb. So I began to realize these were monumental decisions that greatly shaped history, life and death, and so forth. And I wrote over 200 ethicists, friends, colleagues, to say, what do you think were the most significant? I chose six of those that showed up again and again, like the Truman one I just mentioned. But I also chose six that were more obscure because they were in the background in people who are famous. We didn't know about those decisions, but in some cases they shaped their lives. For example, Nelson Mandela made a very tough ethical decision in college before anyone had ever heard of him that meant he would be expelled from college that set the tone for all of his later ethical decisions. So I chose some decisions like that too, behind the scenes, that were not so well known. And I chose some that the consensus of people I wrote 
thought were truly significant. Before we uh, dig into these these twelve and uh, and to some of the basics of of, of what they confronted, uh, I wonder if we can help our listeners understand, and for that matter, help me to understand as well. What are we talking about when we are talking about the field of ethics and ethical dilemmas? I think ethics is something that we it's one of those words we we hear a lot, but are probably sort of afraid to to uh, grapple with uh, f- for fear that we're not going to really understand I- exactly what it's about and we're, we allow ourselves to be satisfied with just the vaguest notion of, of what it means. Help us understand what it means to be thinking about ethics or to think about a given situation uh, through the lens of ethics. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, too, that people are often confused about the term or mean different things by the term. So what I do is I separate out the meanings of it so we're very clear. The first level is a way of life and moral decision-making, like the Christian ethic or the Buddhist ethic or the capitalist ethic and so forth. The second is all of those rules and guidelines that pertain to professional behavior and moral decision-making, like codes of ethics, policies, um, and all the synonyms for those guidelines and so forth. The third is what we do in colleges and elsewhere, the study of definitions number one and two. What's out there? What are the ethical systems? As a professional, what do you need to do to be ethical? So that goes on in college. And the fourth level of definition is what the woman or man on the street generally means when they say, you know, he ain't got no ethics, meaning he's a politician. Whoops, did I say that? (laughs) Uh, Meaning the person doesn't have virtue or honesty or character. You can't trust the person. So if we look at it that way, we can sort out what we really mean by ethics. Most of the time we mean level number four, you know, what what we say on the street. But in the college, we're talking about Kant and Aristotle and all the famous ethicists. And in our professions, we may be talking about what would be considered a bribe. If someone takes me out for a meal that costs $200, my company may have a policy that says you can't do that, only $25, you know, and other guidelines for ethical behavior. Early on in the book, you make a point that I think is so important as we think about some of these very specific stories. And uh, it's, it's this. You, you write uh, that ethics often involve moments when our choices are not between clear-cut good and evil, but are instead between two goods, two evils, or, or two or more unknowns. What do we do? I was so glad to read that because it, it, it really underscored the, the rather simplistic idea that I think most of us have about whether or not somebody is ethical or makes an ethical decision. We tend to think of it in very much black and white terms. There's a, a good thing to do and there's a bad thing to do. And if you choose the good thing, you're ethical <laughs> or, you, or you were ethical at least in that, in that moment. And uh, it's really intriguing to think about life being filled with ethical dilemmas and choices that do not involve choosing between black and white, good and evil, right and wrong. Uh, Tell us more about these gradations of gray, if we want to call them that, that uh, make all of this so much more complex. 
Yeah, these are very relevant questions. For example, with COVID, who gets the ventilator? Who gets the equipment? Who wears the mask? Do schools reopen? When do businesses reopen? Um, are all the questions about policing our society? Do we police our children, our young people, our entire society? How far do we go? Do we defund the police or do we refund and honor the police and so forth? These are issues we hear about all the time, and we have ongoing issues that don't have anything to do with the decade we're in. For example, do we put our parents in nursing homes? Do we take uh, people who are in comas off life support? Do we carry guns? Should we? Do we believe in capital punishment? Or do I, as a teacher, fail borderline students? Whom do we hire and fire and when? Who's exempt from serving in the military, if anyone? What if we have a lawbreaker in our family? Do we report them? Or an addict in our family? Do we intervene? Um, should our children be allowed to drink or drive or have a curfew? Of, of what nature? What about our own consumption of all these things? What if I'm pregnant? Does that change it? Those are ongoing decisions that we face all the time. And then we have the particular ones that are related to COVID and so forth on top of that going on concurrently. So ethics is in our face. It's part of our life. It's really good to be prepared for it. We can learn from these 12. At the end of the book, I did decide to come up with aggregate suggestions and aggregate qualities about what they all had in common. But ultimately, we all have our own particular conscience and training and background and consultants and so forth. So at the very end of the book, I said, after you do all of that, whatever you need to do to make your ethical decision, here are three very simple steps to follow on top of that that I think will make for a very wise and balanced ethical decision. I won't say what they are, so they'll read the book. <laughs> right, right. The uh, I, I'm reminded of one of my favorite lines in the book when you write, the cases, that is these 12 cases of ethical dilemmas, reveal much common ground and reveal a path for wise decision-making uh, in an age when our world seems severely challenged eth ethically. For those of you uh, just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Tom Cooper, about his newest book, Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. Dr. Cooper, before we get to some specifics with your book, I hope you won't mind if we spend just a couple of minutes talking about something else that you have written extensively about. And I would hate to run out of time at the end without asking you about your interest in ethics and media. And this just seems as timely as anything could possibly be. And I wonder if you could just say a word about the kind of things that you have explored uh, when it comes to the matter of, of ethics or the lack of ethical behavior when it comes to the media. Absolutely. We hear about these issues all the time, invasion of privacy, fake news, uh, dishonest advertising, on and on it goes. And so we took multiple surveys about the issues that bothered the American people the most and used surveys taken by Roper and many others uh, to compile Americans' major concerns. Their first concern is truth-telling. How do you know if uh, truth is being told to the greatest degree possible? Whom can you trust in that regard? And all the orbiting factors to truth-telling, such as sensationalism, bias, hype, all those kinds of things. The second concern they have is excess with the media. Is it too much sex, too much violence, too much advertising, uh, on and on, um, too much crime obsession, 
Um, and the third major concern they have is with privacy. Uh, and that's all kinds of media. Is your handheld, is your laptop, is your desktop, um, you know, constantly getting uh, hit by ransomware and people who are, uh, you know, in the dark market and so forth. Uh, all those messages you're getting, who really knows about you. But it also pertains to television and uh, radio and so forth. Is the coverage of celebrities uh, far too invasive? Do we know far more about people than we should know? Um, what about satellites, you know, and other things constantly reporting to the military? What about the Snowden and all those kind of questions? So it's a huge field um, that has many, many tributaries and subsets to it. And um, I want to point out that I'm not a media basher. While I'm interested in all those problems, I've also found people of character and integrity in the media as well who want to tell stories that are important, that educate, that inspire um, and uh, programs that have changed people's lives. So I'm interested in the upside as well as, whoops, are we going too far in these areas? Hmm. I'm just curious. Uh, I, I'm always intrigued when we really explore, for instance, uh, uh, early American history, how uh, <laughs> the more we learn about media in the first decades of our, of our country's history, uh, the more we realize that uh, some of these issues that can spoil what should be the good work of, for instance, a free press, uh, are not unique to our own modern age, but there have been serious issues almost right from the start. Uh, and I'm j just curious, is your sense that some of th these hard questions we're asking about ethics in media, is that something relatively new or right from the start, I mean, through our history, have there been people kind of calling these issues uh, to light? It goes way back. If you look at Hammurabi's code that most people don't even think mentions communication uh, because they haven't heard of it in that context, it says, if a man murders another man, that's punishable by death. But if a man accuses another man of murder and can't prove it, that's also punishable by death. In other words, destroying right. reputation. And as soon as people could write, writing was used to destroy reputation. So libel and slander and all of those things go way back. And in the book itself, in three different decades, it figures very prominently. First in the life of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson was behind the scenes paying scandal mongers and others who had the tabloid press to demean his president, John Adams, when he was vice president. Most people don't know that story. They were of two different parties. In those days, the president and the vice president represented different groups to put the groups together. And so one of them hated the other and used uh, the scandal-mongering press to go after the other. Similarly, and this is you know, many, many decades later, when Marie Curie was the first person, not the first woman, the first person to win two Nobel Prizes in science. She was a real threat to the male academic establishment. They would not let her in uh, the French Academy of Science and so forth and so on. So when she had what was considered a small scandal of having an affair with a married man, they made it the largest scandal on record at that time. Um, and she was forced to either leave science um, in order to kind of go back to her home country of Poland or to run the risk of the death threats that were coming to her and her family. They were throwing bricks at her home. Most people don't realize 
what she went through. They just remember, you know, how how she won those Nobel prizes and what she contributed to our study of radiation and so forth. So there's another case where scandal was huge and where the tabloids really ran away. They had anti-Semitic stories, and she wasn't even Jewish. Um, Hmm. And uh, they were constantly gossiping about how she was a homewrecker of the other woman and her children and so forth. Um, And it's not even known that she actually had physical intimacy with this man or whether they were just close friends. So there's a second case in point. The third is a more positive use of media ethics. It's about Edward R. Murrow, the famous journalist, and he's in the book, too. He had to stand up to McCarthy and the Red Scare, which you may recall was causing many people to lose their jobs and some to commit suicide because they were called communists, and that was a fate worse than death in in the 50s in America. It gave us a huge black eye and created the term called McCarthyism. And he had to decide whether to use his television show to expose McCarthy or not. He had a lot of footage and a lot of ideas and a lot of research that could possibly bring McCarthy down. Only problem was McCarthy had backing from what was called HUAC, a major committee. He had backing from Hoover, who you know is a very powerful FBI director. He had backing from the Hearst Press, which is another gossip scandal-ridden kind of bring down a person through bad reputation press. And he had to decide whether to use CBS uh, and risk CBS getting a black eye and risk losing his life because he was getting death threats. Even his children were getting, his his son Casey, sorry, he only had one, one child, was getting death threats in his family. So, and even when he went to his private home, death threats showed up there. So, This was a very, very difficult decision for Edward R. Murrow, and he knew that if he could possibly bring down Senator McCarthy, it would be a blow for democracy. It would truly help the country. But he also knew that if McCarthy got the higher hand or blackmailed him in some way and so forth, it could mean not only the end of his career or maybe life, but also his family would live in exile or in ostracism, and CBS itself might be totally at risk because McCarthy had gone after the big guns. He had gone after the Pentagon. He had gone after the White House at certain points. He had gone after other colleagues in the Senate. He feared no one and tainting their reputation. So he would not have feared CBS. And indeed, he did go after Murrow, but Murrow ultimately triumphed. Hmm. So those are three examples of media ethics that show up in the book. Yeah. Very good. We're speaking with Tom Cooper, and we're talking primarily about his newest book, which is called Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. He he examines the uh, difficult ethical dilemmas faced by 12 different people, and uh, collectively they span, if I remember correctly, 25 centuries and uh, uh, eight different nationalities and uh, and more than a dozen different professions. So it is a wide-ranging array of human beings uh, and and a very interesting array of ethical dilemmas as well. Uh, I believe in your book you call these 12 people whom you ultimately chose to focus on in your book 12 ethics exemplars. And yet you also say in the book that you are not interested in canonizing any of these 12 as as faultless saints. So uh, I wonder if you could explain a little more about what you mean by this term of exemplars 
and uh, so we don't misunderstand it as we examine your book more closely. It means when we're in a tough ethical decision, they've set an example, that's what exemplars means in ethical decision making, that over time has stood up as a very valuable um, test and model for ethical decision-making. It does not mean that every aspect of their life was perfect. For example, Kennedy is a well-known womanizer, and his poor wife often was the last to know or often had to leave the room or whatever. So I'm not holding them up as virtuous in every possible way. Even Gandhi and Mandela, who many people lionize as ethics champions, had severe problems in their family. I mean, Gandhi chose chastity uh, at a certain point in his marriage. Imagine what his wife would feel about that. Um, His children sometimes uh, felt in the fishbowl and that they no longer had the kind of relationship with the father, if ever they did, that they could trust and so forth. Mandela said that was true. One of the biggest mistakes in his life was just not being there for his family. He was in jail uh, more of his life than he was, he was free. And he had constant regrets that he wrote about in his autobiography about not doing well by his wives, not doing well uh, by his children. So we're not holding any of these people up as 100% perfect human beings. None of us are. Um, but we are saying that when push came to shove, when they had tremendous decisions to make where many other people would have backed down or left the country or whatever else. Uh, Malala had the option of going to other schools, for example. She had the option of fleeing the Taliban. She didn't. She stood up and she spoke, and she's still alive to tell the story, but she was barely alive for a long time because they did shoot her. So all of these people are virtuous in some ways, but if you read their autobiographies, they're usually the first to admit what their limitations are. Hmm. One of the uh, interesting moments in the book in which we're, we're uh, given a touch of the personal is when you mention your own father. Uh, he is not one of the 12, but uh, he was confronted with uh, a terribly difficult uh, ethical dilemma uh, during his career uh, in the military. I wonder if you would mind just briefly sharing uh, this this story uh, with our, with our listeners and and maybe explain why you wanted to uh, include this uh, mention in the book. Yes, ethics is cut very close to me, and when I heard from my dad about what he had been through, very um, very seriously, what he'd been through and went through again and again, and I'll say why that is. Uh, it made a huge impression on me. He was one of the two chaplains on the USS Forrestal, which had a very serious fire. Over 100 sailors were killed, and um, they were at sea and had to make very difficult ethical decisions. Sick bay wasn't large enough to contain all the men who would go in there, and uh, they were on the flight deck where uh, the exploding bombs had occurred and where a fire had started and where men rose up courageously to push Uh, 100-pound bombs and so forth over the edge of the ship. This was a true nightmare, but also a time for true heroism. And my father basically was involved in decisions, you know, about, so who gets the last rights or who gets to give that last word to their loved one 
um, you know, chaplain, chaplain, they would be crying, people who were dying in various places. The medics had to make similar decisions that ultimately meant who lived and died. If you have five people uh, with critical burns and you can only take them down one at a time to sick bay, several floors below and so forth and so on, you're ultimately deciding people's fate. And Dad, of course, had a huge conscience because as a chaplain, he was a man of God from you know, his own deepest soul, and um, he didn't want to disappoint God any more than disappoint the families. Later, he had to go and deliver messages to all the families who had lost, you know, sometimes their only child or sometimes their youngest or whatever, at the age of 18, 19, 20, these sailors. And this decision that he he had made uh, through the fog and through the fire of not even knowing where those voices were coming from, uh, was something that stayed with him for life. And uh, we may not have decisions like that ourselves, but it just goes to show that even in your own family, there may be a very serious ethical decision. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Tom Cooper. We're talking about his book, Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. Um, most of these 12 stories are are shared with us chronologically, with the exception of the story of John F. Kennedy and specifically the uh, ethical dilemma he faced during uh, the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, that is the story we are told first and then, uh, and then the rest in, in chronological order. I- explain to our listeners why you wanted to lay out the book in this way and why you decided to begin with President Kennedy. If you've noticed film structure, <laughs> often they'll begin with a scene that's asynchronous, it's not set in time, even if most of the film is chronological, just to get your attention, and because it's a quite a dramatic episode and one that's well known, and the Cuban Missile Crisis follows all those criteria, not to mention that we might not be alive uh, had he or Khrushchev made a different decision. But I also chose it for another reason. Kennedy wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Profiles in Courage, which this book, in a way, uh, pays homage to. And 30 years later or so, after Kennedy wrote Profiles in Courage about statesmen who had cast a deciding vote or statesmen who had risked death in order to come into the Senate to make a vote, things like that, Um, 30 years later, his daughter, Caroline, uh, edited a book called Profiles in Courage for Our Time. So I didn't want to just write a book that had Profiles in Courage in it without acknowledging uh, the people who had started that genre in the United States and been known for it. Uh, So in a way, I'm saying to the Kennedys, you get the opening shot here so I can thank you for this subject matter. But I wanted to go in a very different direction than they had gone. They stayed in the narrow realm, pretty much of white male, uh, you know, political leaders and uh, statesmen and so forth, because that's their realm. Um, But I wanted to say anybody can be an exemplar from any culture. So as you said, I spread it out to many nations, many professions, both genders, to people of uh, the second century BC and so forth to all the way to someone who's still alive. So the book's very different in that way. Multiple religions, multiple professions, multiple perspectives. One of the 
ways in which this book is shaped is that you not only share each of these 12 stories in, in, in really uh, telling detail, but also sort of laid against each of these stories as, as kind of a framework uh, is a list of 10 ethical factors. And, and in each case, I think in all 12 chapters, uh, you take a moment to kind of size up this particular ethical dilemma against these various factors. I wonder if you could just tell our listeners more about this, this framework and, and uh, maybe say a word about how you arrived at it. Absolutely. The first part of each chapter is a little mini-mystery, because I want the public and everybody who's reading to be literally teased, to feel there's a story here. And so I start out that way. But as a professor, I'm very aware that a lot of academics are going to read this, that people are going to use it in the classroom, including myself. And so I decide on really deconstructing or analyzing these decisions after we find out what the decision is. So if people want to skip that part because they're not academically inclined, they can read it like a novel. But if they are interested in using it in the classroom or whatever, they've got these 10 factors at the end to see how much they uh, played a role in each of the decisions. And the factors are notions of fairness and justice, the impact or consequences of the decision, the ends and means, and there were often questions of whether the ends justify the means, the tone and atmosphere. For example, Gandhi always insisted on the high tone of nonviolence, no matter what was being done to him. Fifth, motivation and higher law. Was there a higher law at work for some of these people? And what was the motivation involved? Six, allegiance and loyalty. In many ethics issues, we have conflicting loyalties. Next, values and principles. Some of these are people of high principle. Next, the cultural context. Does it matter what culture you're coming from? Then the implications of this, um, you know, for the future. Uh, what might this imply if I go this way or that way? And finally, proportion and balance. How much did they weigh these factors? The tenth one is not an additional factor. It's a question about to what extent did they pay attention to these? And we go over that for every single of the 12 cases to kind of analyze what made them happen and what were the decisive factors. Let's uh, explore a little bit about this very first story that uh, is in the book, namely that of, of John F. Kennedy and uh, the, the, the very, very difficult, almost impossibly difficult choices that he faced uh, during the 13 days of the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis. This would be, of course, one of the stories among these 12 in which at least the, the bare outline is, is going to be quite well known to, uh, to, to, to many of your readers. Um, tell us the ways in which you have presented this in a way different from what someone might find if they are just reading kind of a standard historical narrative of, about the Cuban Missile Crisis. What is different about your treatment of this famous moment in history? I wanted to go into what made John Kennedy tick in a way that I hadn't found written up elsewhere. And um, so I had to do some deep research. In many of these cases, 
I go into letters that were written or um, uh, you know more than one biography, uh, archival materials, so forth and so on. And one of the interesting things you find out about Kennedy is not only did he have this severe back pain uh, that forced him to sleep on the floor and that made him chronically in pain, you know, and twist and turn and all of that, uh, and sometimes he couldn't even touch his shoe and so forth, and that that sets a tone for your decision-making. But he also had all these drugs to make that pain go away, some of which were untested in his day, some of which turned out to be things that today we would not be taking. And he was a Molotov cocktail of mixed uh, kind of uh, chemical influences. At the same time, this womanizing was going on. His wife would sometimes be the last to find out his social excuse me, excuse me, not his social security, his security detail would often prevent her from entering the room or whatever where, when he was doing something. So he was just horrible in some ways and, and distorted in some ways. And um, he had all these lobbying influences going against him too, that some of, some of those are well known, but some of them are not so well known. Even the day that he first heard about it, he had visits from statesmen from different countries, other people who would have some desire to influence him had they known exactly what decision he was making. So talk about a complicated world that he lived in. He also had to decide how much of this to reveal to the public, what ethical decision that you have in a situation like this is. Could you cause panic? Could you cause unnecessary suicides or worry? Or everybody running to bunkers and all of that sort of thing. Um, and so he had a kind of double ethics dilemma. What to do with Khrushchev? Uh, what to do about the missiles? Uh, what to do about the future? Would the future be a nuclear future? Uh, and he also had immediate questions. Everyone in the White House was given um, these envelopes, all the employees, to give to their families. Well, Jackie wasn't right there where he was. She had fled because the night before he'd been with another woman and not too private about it. And um, so he had this envelope that he had to get to his wife and family. Imagine how all these different things would be playing on your head. Could my family be wiped out if I choose this decision? Could the entire country no longer count on me if I make the wrong decision? Will I be reelected if I make this? All those things run through a politician's head. And then he was also a lapsed Catholic, you know, and so to what extent did his conscience, did his God and so forth play a factor? And his father, of course, was a huge influence. You know, what would Dad think? So this combination of visible factors and then hidden factors, what was going on chemically in his body, and the pain that he felt and the inability to move in certain ways, the many vectors and people influencing him, including his own brother, uh, the cabinet meetings that were going on constantly to decide what to do, the sleepless nights. You can imagine how that would all reach a boiling point uh, when you ultimately have to make the decision. Right. I especially appreciated in this this uh, chapter uh, a little section which you, you uh, headline, The Nature of Ethical Tension. You write, a substantial ethical dilemma pulls an individual in two or more directions, like the owner of two leashed greyhounds who jerk him toward opposite paths. A person in the ethics hot seat feels tugged by at least two 
contrary forces, because there are likely to be moral costs no matter which choice he makes. The hot seater may feel that she or others are damned if I do and damned if I don't, so he or she may struggle to determine if there is a lesser of two evils, a greater of two goods, or a safer of two unknowns. Uh, and and uh, we can, of course, read on in this chapter to find out more about how President Kennedy ultimately came to the difficult decision that, that he did. Um, let's at least briefly touch on uh, several others of uh, of, of these stories uh, in your book, Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. One of the most intriguing choices you make uh, is the earliest story, that of Queen Esther of Babylon. And this is actually something which uh, may or may not be historically or factually accurate in, in every sense, and yet you obviously found something compelling enough about the story of Queen Esther uh, to include it here. Uh, tell our listeners uh, just uh, briefly about the ethical dilemma that she faced and why you thought this story belonged here. One reason I thought it belonged is we don't tend to think of her as being the first person to stop anti-Semitic genocide. That's a huge story right there if we put it in modern language that way. Or as perhaps one of the first feminists to give women power in an unprecedented way. Um, and so she's extremely modern in that sense, even though the classical way of looking at her, she's of course a heroine in Judaism, and Purim is a time to celebrate her moral victory. Um, but in Christianity, she's also known in the Old Testament as one of the leading women in the Bible, and when there are courses about women in the Bible, she frequently appears. What we don't know is the third perspective about whether she was historically accurate. So I tried to pay some attention to that to find out what we know about her, who she might have been, uh, the records from a third perspective. I honor the Christian and the Jewish perspective, but I also want to know, you know, from the perspective of those who lived in the Middle East and so forth, which queen might she have been, and I delve into that a bit. But whether she's historically accurate or not, she symbolizes something that I felt was truly important. A young person facing a dilemma by an older, all-powerful person, a person in a minority situation facing a majority culture, a person who is so deeply religious that she calls on all of her people to fast with her, um, a person who is in a harem. And we typically think of a queen as being an equal ruler with her husband. But in fact, as we look at this historically, she would not have had that much power to do what she did could have meant instant death by the king. He was all powerful and seen as divine and the queen much lesser than. In fact, the previous queen had vanished. And we don't know from the record if that means she was banished or if she was uh, executed or what happened to her, but we know the king had so much power that when she displeased him, off she went, and a new queen was desired. What's interesting about this is Esther was chosen in what we might call a beauty queen contest. Apparently, the king spent one night with each of many beautiful women who had been prepared for him, and then selected one, and she had won the selection, uh, as best we can tell when we delve into all the records. So here we have a young beauty queen, so to speak, of a hidden um, ethnicity uh, forced by the king 
to be part of a policy that would kill everyone of that ethnicity and that religious faith um, at a time when the king was all-powerful and when even seeking to talk to him could be so politically unwise that he could have you instantly put to death. Because often when he was talking, he was either politicking or romancing another one of his wives or, or potential wives. And so to intrude into his chamber, even as the queen, could be ultimately lethal. That's the backstory that we often don't know and why her act was so courageous when she did uh, come up with a plan to save her people. An amazing story. An amazing story. Uh, we proceed uh, from there to the story of, of, of Socrates um, and then to our second president, uh, John Adams. And and I think a story that uh, I suspect lots of Americans uh, know little if nothing about, uh, namely the, the way in which uh, our young nation teetered on the brink of war with a nation that had been one of our our most important allies, France. And uh, you explore uh, some of what John Adams had to wrestle with at that important moment. But I want to jump ahead to a name that will, I suspect, be completely unfamiliar to just about everybody who reads your book, uh, someone by the name of William Wilberforce. Uh, and I am so glad to uh, make this gentleman's acquaintance uh, in, in your book. Uh, tell our listeners about his important story, why he is here among these 12 ethics exemplars. Yes, he's uh, quite uh, an interesting character. Uh, for one thing, which has nothing to do with the book, he, he started the ASPCA uh, and had animals of all kinds living with him, even a fox. You wonder how having a predator there would have done with all the other animals. But he's in the book for a totally different reason. He was a major politician in England who opposed the slave trade at a time when virtually no one did. There were a few abolitionists throughout history who always stood tall. And there were, of course, runaway slaves and many others who, um, as Africans and what we now call African-Americans and so forth, opposed slavery. But no one had the political power he potentially had as a member of parliament. So he kept fighting again and again to end the legislation, being laughed at and defeated. And by night, there were lawyers who were assigned to come up with ways to, um, you know, cross his path politically and others by night to create scandals about him. And they had a hard time pinning anything on him because he was known as a devout Christian and he wanted to maintain that image of being a devout Christian at all costs. But he could not defeat slavery. So he had a huge ethical dilemma about whether he would lie to Congress, or in their case it's called Parliament, and the House of Commons is where he was. He had to have allies also in the House of Lords. So it's a system like ours where you have both the Senate and the House, and he had two houses, House of Commons, House of Lords. He had to get the legislation through both of them. And a clever lawyer who was also related to him came up with a plan that would get legislation through, but in order to do it, they had to be deceptive. And as a man of high integrity whose reputation rested on him being an honest Christian and so forth, he could not see how in the world he would possibly deceive people, even though among politicians that was pretty common, as it is today. And so 
the decision that he had to make ultimately meant saving, in his day, thousands of lives. But over time, it would be millions of lives. If we still had slavery, think how many people would have been influenced. And all of those people of color who are doctors and lawyers and everything else would not exist um, hmm. because they would have been enslaved. So he he had a tremendous impact, and the people who supported him did as well. And I don't want to minimize the role of all the slave rebellions and people of color who were fighting this as well. But in the public eye, he was the most significant person. Mm-hmm. You proceed from there to, of course, the stories of uh, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Marie Curie, uh, environmentalist Rachel Carson. Uh, in our last uh, just uh, two minutes or so, I want you to say a brief word about uh, the most recent of these 12 ethics exemplars, who I would also wager is uh, most likely the youngest of the 12. Absolutely, Malala. And if it is the last two minutes, I have to say this is available at Barnes and & Noble and Amazon and so forth, or my publicist will have my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Malala is still alive and well, and in fact, younger than many people who have a Ph.D., and she already has honorary PhDs, not to mention a Nobel Peace Prize that she shares, as well as having spoken to the United Nations, done a lot of things at an earlier age than, than most of us have done in our entire lives. So she had to brave the Taliban, and the Taliban basically um, opposed girls' education. And every time a girl's school was set up in Pakistan near where she lived, it was bombed. And um, even the police who were supposed to protect those who were bombed were being beheaded by the Taliban and the heads displayed. So basically it was a reign of terror where people knew if you oppose the Taliban, your history. And um, they were broadcast by the Taliban basically saying these kinds of things all the time. And so she lived in a propaganda world as well in a world where it became known to her that she was a mark, that if she continued to speak out for girls' education, um, she could be taillights. Her father had also been an educator who included her and other girls in his classroom. So she knew that if she was a mark, probably he and anyone related to her would be as well, not to mention that people were being killed all the time who were her friends. So relatives, friends, and so forth could all perish if she continued to speak out. And she had tough ethical decisions to make. But she basically wrote, you know, as great as our fear was, our courage was even greater. If you read her book, I Am Malala, um, I can't remember the exact way she worded it. So she was a normal person in terms of having immense fear about this and constantly knowing Each day could be her last, day after day after day she faced that, and so did many of the people around her. But she had the courage not only to speak out, but to once she was shot and almost killed, to recovering from that and making this her life mission, to support education for children of both genders, but especially for girls, and to speak out worldwide about this and to set up her own foundation and so forth at the very young age of being in her early 20s. Hmm. So, um, yes, she was included for many reasons, one, by virtue of that courage and that ethical stand, but also by virtue of the fact that since she's alive and young, I can say to my students, you don't have to mature into an ethics exemplar by the time you're 50 or 60. 
you can be courageous at your age. Absolutely. The book again, Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage, the author, Dr. Tom Cooper. Professor Cooper, thank you so much for giving the world this important book, and thank you for being part of the morning show today. Absolutely, and thank you for such great questions.